Welcome to the penultimate episode of Helium Podcast. We are circling back to friend of the show, Courtney Gardner. She's a professor at the Washington State University in Pullman, Washington. And if you haven't heard the initial episode, I want to stop you right here. Go back to episode six and listen to Courtney's episode before she started her job. She, we actually recorded it with her as she was on the road going to her new position. And we circled back around to her uh, to see how things went based on the initial interview. But this interview will be much more valuable to listen to if you've heard episode six of the podcast. We said at the time we recorded that first episode that we would loop back and debrief after Courtney had had that first year under her belt. And I am pretty proud of all of us because we actually did it. Um, this pair of episodes honestly represents exactly what Matt and I were hoping to create with the helium culture, which is vulnerable sharing about challenges and rewards of this research life in the way that you talk to your friends or people, as we said, at a coffee shop or bar of the conference without that veneer of professionalism that you may need in day-to-day work life, but it can also keep us from getting at the things that would be really helpful to talk about with each other. So as I said, this is a second to last episode of the podcast. And so if you love some of the episodes from our guests, uh, we want to make sure that the show stays posted for others to hear. And so in order to keep the show live uh, on iTunes servers and other things like that, and have a website for the show, it costs a little money every single month. So we've set up a Patreon page at patreon.com slash helium podcast. So if you enjoyed the show and you want others to enjoy the show, you can go there and give us a little money. If we have anything left over and we see one of our future or our former episode guests in the future, we might even buy him a coffee. <laughs> so if you go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash helium podcast. There'll be a place to donate to the show if you appreciated uh, what we did here. So with that, let's drive into this great episode with our dear friend and objectively wildly successful assistant professor of civil and environmental engineering, Dr. Courtney Gardner. So here we are. It's 2019, just like we said it would be. Almost 2020. Almost 2020. Let's not talk about 2020. Let's not. Did you guys really need to say that? Let's. (laughs) That is a big number. It is a big number. It is. It is um, too big, one might say. Yeah, I might be that one. Yeah. (laughs) Um, This is pretty cool. So we we had a fun time thinking of the stuff we want to ask you, but um, actually it's just like, also good to catch up. So these are yeah. legitimately the things we would ask if we were just calling you mm-hmm. without recording it too. Um, <laughs> so, um, so, okay. Well, last time we talked to you, we were asking you what you thought would mm-hmm. be the hardest or biggest hurdle. And you said that you thought teaching might be it. So we were just curious, was that it? And yep. what were some... <laughs> A hundred percent, nay, two thousand twenty percent. Yeah, uh, but I'll let you also ask the follow-up question. <laughs> Sorry, uh, no, this is perfect. So I guess the, there's a couple. Just like, what was the most challenging thing about it? <sighs> um, I would have to so there are a couple things that are challenging for me personally maybe some other people who listen can relate and others maybe not so much but for me 
Um, I don't, I don't get a lot of my power from being in front of people and giving a talk, um, that, that drains my battery, um, pretty efficiently. Um, so, <laughs> Uh, and so, um, my earliest memory of public speaking was, uh, in third or fourth grade, um, just to give you some context for this struggle. Um, it was, we were supposed to write a speech and give it in front of class. Um, and I think I was the only student who threw up, um, no. and so I've improved since I certainly improved since then. Um, but giving a public talk is always pretty stressful for me. Um, and then, uh, even, even when it's in my ken, when it's in my technical area, um, because then I think of all the things I could possibly be talking about and is what I'm talking about today really good enough. And does it get to those like three or four key things I want students to take away at the end of the semester? Um, and then this semester, I'm actually teaching something that is well outside of my ken. I'm teaching stormwater management and infrastructure to, to our senior students and um i've never thought about it before and is the stormwater higher for our department and our university um you know that certainly doesn't look great so i thought well i'll develop a stormwater course it'll help me learn about infrastructure here in the state of washington and it will help me just teach classes to undergrads which which i really wanted to do and so in addition to it not being very taking a lot of energy from me, um, being in front of a group of students who absolutely know more about the civil side of things than the environmental side, um, is, was a double mind, um, not a mind, the opposite of a mind meld, a mind, um, exploder, exploder. <laughs> yeah. Um, cause, uh, it was not only, you know, getting up in the morning and thinking I can't do this. I can't get up and talk to students for 50 minutes um, at a time about a subject I don't know. But it was also like the imposter syndrome starting to creep in. Like, you don't know about any of this stuff. Like, how in the world are you going to teach it to somebody else? Um, and so um, that's really been the most, I think, consistent thing about teaching is that it is it is such a source of stress for me that I have really, over the last 18 months or so, um, hold back all the stops in terms of um, decompressing after teaching in a way that will help me get up and teach the next day and hopefully not dread it as, as much um, as I did the day before. And I would say, I don't know that I'm any better at teaching, um, but I don't dread it nearly as much. There's still some dread for sure. Um, but it, it has gotten, I think a little better. Has any, have you gotten any feedback that's like helped you that's encouraged you? No. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so, well, actually that's not true. So, um, uh, my first semester or my first, uh, year, I only taught graduate courses. And so I, being on the other side of the table, not being a graduate student, it's easier for me to, to see what Christine and some of the other faculty members at Duke were talking about when they talked about like grad students are the meanest, like they're the worst. Um, I do always say that. <laughs> like there are some little gold nuggets in there. Um, but for the most part, like 
with grad students, there's this attitude of like, I want to learn these discrete things or I'm being made to teach, to take this course and I don't want any of it. And so I found that some um, teaching grad courses, I am exposed to more criticism than when I have taught undergrad courses, especially senior level undergrad courses. Like if, and I'm teaching an elective this semester, so the students are really excited to be in there. Um, we have some really great engineering students here. Like I've been, they are better engineers than I am, which I shouldn't say on a public forum, um, that'll live forever on the internet, but they, they're incredibly gifted engineers and they're passionate about the subject that I happen to be teaching. And so it's actually been easier to teach this semester than it was last year because, um, student interest was just, it was just there. Um, and then, um, I am still, I think, a nervous teacher, um, and that's something I won't be able to help for maybe the next 10 or 15 years, but I'm hoping, like, right before I retire, I'll be at my peak. Um, but <laughs> some of our, some of the students that I have in that senior elective course, they've come up to me and said, um, they asked me if I was a new teacher, and I asked, how could you tell? Is it the giant sweat stains, or is it um, all of the arithmetic errors I'm making on the board. Uh, and then they said that I was doing a great job and that they don't think teachers get as much credit as they should. And that little nugget at the very beginning of the semester has carried me through the rest of the semester. Like just a little bit of positive feedback from someone that I was projecting to be like really critical of everything that I was doing. And that's absolutely all my poisonous headspace, like being projected onto to those students. But um, that actually helped me more than, more than anything. So if there are any students listening to this out there, be, be nice to your teachers, please. <laughs> <Especially> <laughs> grad students, apparently, especially grad students. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I feel like what you are saying too is, is really neat in that it's clear you're modeling this sort of humility that I think is really important in creating a good teaching and learning environment. So, I mean, maybe that is not what you're describing, like you're doing that by design, but you're just, <laughs> you, but you're having, um, you're doing the thing that's hard in mm -hmm. front of other people, despite it being hard. And I just have really come to believe, especially through interdisciplinary learning and, um, but, you know, working in spaces of, research where there's going to be pervasive uncertainty that mm -hmm. if students are not exposed to that feeling mm -hmm. of discomfort and moving through it uh, and how to kind of be respectful of that and also be brave, then they're not going to be the kind of scientists and engineers and scholars of any kind that we need to solve complex problems. So yes. I think you're also doing a service just in that demonstration um, also everyone thinks you're great because you're an endearing human. So uh, I think it's really, it's really awesome to know that that little lift, you know, you just never know, I guess, to your message to the students, what a little bit of kindness can do for no, everybody. no. And it's, it's, it is a, a little bit by design. And actually what I'm having these senior students do, um, is to give a full lecture, in teams, but to give a full lecture 
on a topic from a list of their choice um, so that they can understand and get kind of that endurance for pitching if they're in a consulting environment or a municipal environment or if they continue on to grad school or beyond um, what it's like to not give a 10 or 15 minute presentation, but to have to sit there to think about how you're going to possibly extend uh, what you would be comfortable with to that longer period of time um, and keep a class engaged and not just read off of slides. And so that was absolutely an intentional part of this class. Um, And then um, I think students actually, it helps students understand what, teachers do at any level, whether it's high school or middle school or higher education, um, because it isn't a skill that comes naturally to most people. And I would, I would say it's not a skill that comes naturally to um, pretty much anybody to, to be able to have that endurance. But um, by practicing and, and kind of flexing those muscles before they get into a situation where they're just dumped into it where their boss says like, Hey, you have to, you have to get us this contract. So how are you going to do that? Um, I would like to, to give students the tools before they get into that environment. So that they um, have run a couple five K's or 10 K's or have marathons before they have to run a whole marathon. Um, and I also hate running. So that's actually the perfect analogy. <laughs> <laughs> so ex- to extend the analogy, I want to go back to something you said about decompression. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if you're willing to to share, what have you found to be effective to kind of decompress and recharge your batteries mm-hmm. uh, after um, these lessons? Yes. Uh, so I um, my department is very flexible. They let us tell them when, when we're going to teach, essentially. So I have um, – I teach in the morning, and I – as much as I hate getting up in the morning – I will always teach in the morning because it, it shortens that time that I am actively dreading or building this awful thing up in my mind before I go to teach. So I start teaching by 9 a.m. every day and I'm done by 1030 every day. Um, and so that that is one of the ways that I have lessened the magnitude of how much I need to decompress at the end of the day. Um, so prevention instead of mitigation, if we were to go by the NSF environmental <laughs> funding call. <laughs> um Uh, And then I try to do things that are completely unrelated to my work or reading or scientific enjoyment because I I have to do plenty of that. And that in itself has become a source of stress, like keeping on top of this mountain of evidence um, and and scientific literature isn't as enjoyable as it used to be because my livelihood and my grad students livelihood depend on it. Um, so to finally answer your question, what I do is to listen to music and and read for fun. And so every month I try to start a new book. Um, and so this past month I finished, uh, the house on Haunted Hill by Shirley Jackson for the first time this year. It's one of my favorite books. Um, but it's a heavy one, so I don't use it to decompress often because it is a little bit of a um, – it can get you in a bad mind space if you're not careful. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, But would fully recommend if anybody is listening and, and wants something um, really challenging and terrible to reckon with in their mind. Um, <laughs> uh, and then um, – uh, music is is really helpful and has always been very helpful for me. So, um, and this 
is answering a different question that hasn't been asked, but um, I've actually been listening to a lot of the music that I discovered and connected to back in Durham um, because um, I miss Durham so much. uh, And I, I miss my friends and our community and it's definitely been like a homesick experience, almost bordering on, on a, a little bit of grief to have like completely left everything we've ever known for this opportunity. That's, that's absolutely great. And we're still very excited about, but um, decompressing by listening to um, like Bon Iver, Sylvan Esso and all of these great bands that I listened to when I was a grad student and unfortunately the happiest ever. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I was a very happy grad student. Um, is actually very good at it. Uh, um, Um, I, I don't know if I should say the thing I'm about to say, but I'm going to see Sylvanesso tonight at Deepak. I'm so, is the with, um, concert series or is it just them headlining? Um, it's the, I think it's the with comfort. Yeah. Yeah. And so, no, that doesn't, that doesn't make me jealous at all, Christine. (laughs) Um, Uh, um, yeah, I think, (laughs) I really, uh, think it's going to be a stupid show and it's going to suck. No. Um, um, Yeah, I've got rotten ready, I'm ready to hurl them. (laughs) I mean, I really feel like that's an, a, a valuable thing that I'm, grateful you were willing to share because I think change is always hard for people, but especially a change sort of, um, you liken it in, in my brain, I liken it to becoming a parent where the mm-hmm. main thing that you're supposed to feel is this prescribed amazingness of this great life change. And maybe that's yeah. all true, but there's also lots to be processed. And, um, when you see that coming or when you just kind of find methods, like you're mentioning to let it move through you and figure out a way to get up the next day and, you know, let time heal you and that type of thing. Mm-hmm. I think that's really helpful to share, you know, cause it, grief is hard enough when it's regular grief, mm-hmm. but when it's supposed to be joy, then it seems extra mean. It feels, yes. And it feels it, when I step back and think about it, I feel ungrateful or on like, I mean, this is, like winning the lottery in terms of the jobs that I wanted to have and getting one right out of the gate. I feel like, um, like a dog that caught a car and then is like, well, now I'm being dragged by the car. Um, yeah, yeah, no, fully, yeah, fully souped up like Mercedes, like it's going Audubon speed down the highway. Um, but I caught it, like I got it. And, um, yeah, so absolutely for sure. Um, and I, it's, Pullman is also a small community. And so I haven't been able to find a, like a therapist or somebody that I've connected well enough to discuss these things and keep in touch with them. So unfortunately my husband is, we've become that for each other. Um, I won't just say he's become that for me, but, um, it is, it's a challenging mental, um, uh, there's an actual word, uh, cognitive dissonance um, that is difficult to overcome because it feels like I can't feel happy and feel sad at the same time. And I've slowly come to realize that luckily our brains are very large and we're very emotionally complex and we can um, 
And if we try to squelch one or the other, then um, eventually that comes back to bite us quite um, viciously. So I'm trying not to not to do that. Um, and then going back to, to Matt's original question, I, it didn't it flew out of my head as soon as you asked me um, about decompressing strategies, but um, I have actually taken up home improvement as a, a way to make things with my hands and um, just get out of being a assistant professor who types things with her hands. Um, and so I bought all the saws that one can buy. <laughs> <laughs> I love this. Um, I make things almost every weekend. Like I am, like we're putting in new stairs. I am recasing all of our doors. Yes. Um putting new flooring down and it is great. Like it makes me feel like I'm making something that is not anything really like not going to be evaluated by anybody else. It's not part of my contract. It's not um, up for questioning. It's just, I made this and it is an improvement over what has was in our 1978 home um, before. So uh, I would also recommend new professors out there also buy saws. Yes, we need a picture of all the saws. I'm going to put it in the show notes because I want to see all the saws that are available. I will line them up. A saw picture. Organized, yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Would fully recommend. Um, And also, I still have all my fingers. Yes, excellent. You're, you're doing great. <laughs> uh, I also kind of like that you're building your life with your hands, kind of. You're building your new life. Yes. And just removing every evidence of the 1970s as everyone poor, else. Poor 70s. Do. Poor yeah. 70s. It was good times. Simpler times. <laughs> Simpler times. <laughs> yes. More lead. More lead yeah. paint. Yeah. Um, but certainly simpler. That's that's great. I mean, we were going to ask you a question about work-life balance, but you pretty much answered it there. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, I like the idea of doing things with your hands that are not judged by others because I, I don't do home improvement stuff, but mm-hmm. there's definitely that element of like you have to – you're still – you're like a brain, right? And mm-hmm. a brain that is communicating with the computer most of the time, right? Yes. But there's like this whole other part of your body that's like – Wait a minute. What do I do? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So that's good yeah. that you've um, found so an outlet for that. Go ahead. For sure. And I was a, um, I was a biology major before I, in college before I discovered engineering. And I am a huge believer in um, not trying to um, squelch our evolutionary biology to fit into like a modern job or a modern way of living. And so back um, when we were more to me or feudal or just more um, less modern uh, people had a, a job but they would their minds would like hone into weaving baskets all day or doing something with their hands all day that would benefit the community and I think that that is kind of lost in, in many modern jobs and for me I won't speak for anybody else um, like I need that I need some kind of component where I'm not doing anything for anybody else. I, my mind is recharging as I am making something with my hand. And then I can look at um, the house that I repainted and think like I made that. I don't look at any of the papers that I published and think like, that was really awesome. I did that. But <laughs> like <laughs> um, having something else it, it has ended up being very important. I feel like understanding what your metrics are for 
I mean, yes, you're going toward the metrics that are laid out for you as you go for tenure, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's obviously kind of guiding some of your professional choices, but also giving yourself permission to have that sort of two things be true at the same time. You also have these other metrics that if you can recognize, okay, this kind of lights me up, then Mm -hmm. how do you build that in? Yeah. That sounds really great. Um, (laughs) I I, uh, kind of have a similar thing where like I know that I need to create something if I, if my brain feels like too full and stuck and clogged and kind of gunky. Yeah. That's, I need to stop using it. Yeah. 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 yeah, That is. Um, (laughs) you heard it here first. Um, (laughs) I knew this would be so pun. (laughs) Um, uh, so I'm going to, I'm going to stop because there's always going to be a million more with those, but, um, on the, on the kind of track of getting toward, um, what you came there to do the job part of it. I, I know that a lot of the things that you're describing are, um, kind of, I don't know if I want to say solitary, but like internal inner world processes, right? That you're orienting toward things. But I also know that you're working with other people and that um, grad students and different people that you bring around you as you kind of nucleate this team of colleagues and people you're going to do your work with are a big deal. And I wonder, I was going to just ask you, um, Matt and I were curious about the recruiting grad students plan, but mm-hmm. maybe I'll just openly, more more broadly, instead of starting with students, just ask you what's your approach been in and kind of how have you prioritized nucleating this kind of crew of people to create mm-hmm. science with? Um, so um, I believe that the students who I should draw in are the students who show interest without being prompted. And so I've had a couple undergrads. Um, I've been going to on-campus events to let everybody know that I've arrived. I'm here. This is what I, (laughs) this is what I do. Um, and if you're interested in that, um, let me know, like come contact me. And so I've had a couple undergraduate students, um, that I am still working with get in contact with me after that. Um, but it's that initial, um, uh, unprompted, like, almost reverse psychology recruiting um, that I think thus far has found me the the best students because I can't force somebody to do good work. But if somebody is motivated inherently to look at the, at trying to solve the environmental problems that are under my wheelhouse, then, then that's the student I want. I don't necessarily want the student who has the highest GPA or the best CV or any of that stuff, because if, they are not passionate about what I do, then it, it's not going to be a good experience for them or for me. And so um, I've I really kind of, I've been actively getting my name out there, but recruiting students has been, has been actually rather passive because I really think that students um, or any individual needs to choose to be involved. And that choice um, is an indicator of, of, how interested or a long-term experience that a student may have. Um, 
And then in terms of recruiting for grad students, like most new assistant professors, I turned to the people who knew graduating seniors or um, had, you know, could recommend me names. And so I actually found my first PhD student through Ashley Thompson, who I went to grad school with and graduated out of Claudia's lab. Um, And her name is Sandra. And I am so happy that I found Sandra through Ashley because she is um, more than I could have hoped for for a first PhD student. She is easy to work with. She um, is super interested in the projects that I had in mind for her, which is key. Um, And um, like comes from a traditional engineering background, but is open to biology and engineering and kind of the the melding of those two disciplines, which I have found not not all engineers are, or not all engineers consider um, kind of my wheelhouse of uh, a valid or an interesting or a uh, priority for engineering research. Um, and then uh, that, yeah. And then one master's student um, contacted me. She's from Bangladesh. She's also great. Um, and then, uh, yeah, actually they all contacted me. Um, so I don't need to say that for all of them, but, um, I've also recruited through AESP and going to their job boards, which is free for any, any assistant professors who may also be listening and struggling to recruit grad students. Um, and I haven't graduated any yet, so I don't know, um, my overall story success rate or what, whatever metric you may have for it. But right now I'm, I'm very happy with the, the team that I have assembled. So as far as the recruiting, have you done any um, travel with recruiting in mind? No. No? No. um, I know that students, or I know that people do that. They go to conferences, they um, look at posters or look at um, the undergrad students who are giving presentations and and try to find them that way. Um, I'm not, I didn't listen to the, the last the first episode. So I don't know if it made the cut, but I remember talking about um, one of the things I was also nervous about was going to conferences and just networking and talking to people, which is not one of my strengths. And so I went into conferences with a more, I would say baseline um, basic goal of just talking to people and networking with um, other professors because I need to, uh, I felt like I needed to learn how to network with people who were in a similar headspace as me to be a effective recruiter for students. Um, and so um, I also haven't been to a conference since I started that I didn't talk to somebody. So I think my days of not talking to anybody at conferences are over. Um, but short answer, no. Um, but I do know people who that has certainly worked for. Uh, one other thing that you had mentioned before, Courtney, was thinking that you were going to start by looking with uh, at people with the same educational background as you, because that would be a good starting point. They would know the same methods and you would know that background. But mm-hmm. um, maybe you still do that, uh, but it sounds like you ended up being able to do it more organically by fit of interest and intrinsic motivation. Would you say you did both or...? Um, so, uh, that was definitely my original plan. Um, I have found that there aren't that many people like me, most people interested in engineering for grad school 
came from an engineering background in the first place. Um, but I did definitely want to have a strong, I wanted my PhD student to have some exposure to microbiological systems and micro um, samples and processing and, and wet lab experience in the context of, of what I do and the skills that I would need for um, that first student to really train other students that came in. And so Sandra definitely fit that bill because she was actively involved in undergraduate research focused on microbiological systems from the time that she started her undergrad um, studies. So she didn't come from a biology background per se, but she had enough experience that I felt comfortable with her expertise that I wouldn't have to start from the ground up with her. Um, and in, in a way that maybe a traditional engineer, I may have had to do. So um, she didn't, she doesn't exactly look like me, but she is a similar enough mirror image that, um, that that was why I pulled the trigger on her for a PhD student. So I guess yes and no. You know, um, something else, uh, this is kind of staying in the weeds of the group, um, but I'm just curious because it sounds like your group grew pretty quickly. So I was going to ask yes. the size of it. And then also whether that, uh, was just, um, what you felt like made sense or was there a departmental kind of a quota or what, uh, led to the growth rate and the it size that you have now? Then. Yeah. Yes. Cause it's pretty um, amazing. It is, um, uh, certainly an extra source of anxiety, um, but so I actually have two students right now. One master's student is starting in the spring. So we do spring admissions here. Um, and he was an opportunity hire that I didn't know. I figured I would get him here and then I'll figure out how to fund him for the rest of the time. But um, my third student happened to be just stuck in Pullman because he followed his partner here. He was from, I think, Georgia Tech wanted to turn his experience in Pullman into something that he could hold. So I offered um, that in two years, if he did all this stuff for me, I would give him a piece of paper that said that he had a master's degree so that he could um, turn this experience into something good. So there was no pressure to take on a bunch of students quickly. And when I explained to my chair um, that I didn't want to take students in my first year because I am a wet lab, I don't want to start this culture of um, we don't have anything right now. Let's order it. Let's wait. Like I wanted to have everybody kind of ready to go and have all my equipment ordered before I took on students. He was absolutely accepting of that. And so I took on one master's and one PhD student at the beginning because I didn't want them to be alone. Um, I didn't want uh, grad school is inherently solitary enough. And so I didn't want to add um extra isolation to that. So I wanted at least a small cohort for my first students. Um, and then this third student was just an opportunity hire that I wanted to take advantage of and scoop him before he found somebody else um, in the school to, to get that piece of paper from. So uh, I've had several thoughts this week that um, I don't know how I'm going to squeeze another student into my time. Um, but I'll figure it out. I'm super excited about it. I think they're going to be a great cohort of students. Um, and so it's also my job 
to not let my students feel any of that pressure. Um, and I am very grateful to my mentors um, and especially my primary advisor back at Duke because she didn't let me feel any pressure for funding or what, like, is, am I going to be here in six months or a year or whatever? So um, that is certainly a culture that I want to keep going in my lab. So this, that stress is for me. Um, and then coursework and research stresses is for them. But between, um, um, oh, and then uh, I got my first grant. So that helped with funding and hey. money to help me take on a, another student. So between that and my startup and my TA um, uh, funding availability through the department, I have enough to keep all of my students going for their entire um, uh, for their entire tenure here. So they're set and then I'll figure out more students later on, but there's great. Nice. Yes. Yeah. We weren't going to touch the funding question. unless. Yes. You no, it's um, <laughs> we, like, I, we won't touch it unless she mentions it. Yes. Um, thank you. Congrats. That's very nice of you. Yes. Uh, I was very surprised um, it was the one that I felt the most confident about sending out, but it's a USDA federal grant. I'm the primary um, PI and it'll last for a couple of years. So no money is ever enough, but it is helpful. Um, and it is more than I would have ever um, anticipated for my first, the first thing that I pulled in. So that more than anything took a lot of the pressure off. I can only imagine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Congrats. Yes. Congratulations. Thank you. That's really good news. Yes. Um, and that kept, there are plenty of dark times and, and happy times, but that first thing that came in helped me get through um, that semester as well. So, cause I, I could always refer back to, well, you know, I am a C minus here, maybe a D plus here, a solid be here, but I have this thing that's an external person thought we like this enough that we're going to give you $500,000 for it to do it. So that was great. That was good. That's fantastic. And I feel like letting those wins carry you, you know, is really important in a multi juggling type of a job, right? So mm-hmm. they can't all be A plus all the time, especially as you're ramping up. Um, and, uh, you know, one, one thing Matt and I were wondering is you can't do all the stuff, right? So you're choosing. Um, although part of, I don't know, part of the approach is to do too much every time, right? At the beginning. Um, yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. But <laughs> there's like, there's some amount of filtering. So we were curious sort of what are the biggest, the big bets that you placed in your first year, like things that you went all for um, mm-hmm. and um, risks that you took, whatever. So um, yeah. So one of the, the risks that I took early on was um, electing not to teach a class last spring. So my first year, I was supposed to teach one class in the fall and one class in the spring, taught my fall class. When we got to the spring, there weren't enough courses to go around. Um, uh, so the option was going to be to teach nothing 
or to make up a one-time, one-hit wonder class um, that I've never taught before that would be new to the department um, and that would be kind of a, a very large time sink. Um, and so naturally, the way that I phrase that probably makes both of you think that, well, obviously you just don't teach a class. Like you, you just don't teach the class. Um, but the, the caveat with choosing that path is that there's a significantly higher expectation of research productivity if I have a lightened course load, especially if I wasn't teaching a class at all. Um, and so um, one of the older or more established faculty members who is mentoring me um, said that it was definitely a red flag in somebody's 30 review case that um, they had the same situation happen to them and they weren't productive enough in research. And so their third year review didn't go well because of that. And so it endangered their tenure case and endangered um, kind of their reputation and position in the department. Um, and so I took the risk and decided not to teach that spring semester course and figured that I and not having any students um, to focus on for research productivity. I just decided to write every single grant that I came in contact with um, mm -hmm. because if I wrote 20, they couldn't say anything. Um, and so that's what I did. Uh, I, in my first year, I wrote 21 grant proposals um, the majority of which were in that second semester. Um, and having done that, uh, I don't know that I would do it again. So, um, because it is, it was great. It was great to get all of that stuff on paper and get all of my ideas like fleshed out so that when they were inevitably rejected, I would still have a skeleton to refer back to and improve and put more muscles on it. Um, or just make it better or just decide like this is actually garbage and shouldn't even be resubmitted. Um, but it was so much more solitary and isolating that for the same, probably a similar amount of work. Um, I almost like, I, I can still see pros and cons for both situations, but, um, those, a, a very strange second semester, um, but I did get that USDA grant out of one of those applications. So now they really can't ding me too hard on it. Um, and then I ended up taking a summer REU student after that spring semester. And he was super, he was great. Um, he was one of the best undergrad researchers I've ever encountered. I would we did like a foundational training couple weeks at the beginning um, so I could introduce him to the project. And then he was just like, okay, I got it. Like didn't have any experience with any of this stuff before. He was just a super quick visual learner and was pretty self-sufficient for the rest of the summer. And so I think um, having had that semester to focus on writing and getting a bunch of stuff out also helped me have more time in the summer to dedicate to that student. Um, and he's actually, we're still in contact and he is going to um, a conference or two to present some of his summer research results from, from the time that he spent here. So um, Stephen, if you're listening, um, I would still work with you again. So <laughs> Stephen won't be listening. But, um, but I, uh, that was actually a great, a great, um, like appetizer to what it was like, would be like having grad students as well. 
Um, think, you, oh, risks. We were talking yeah, about big risks. bets. Any other big, big bets. bets you can think of? Um, I uh, only bet um, I didn't take students my first year. Um, and so I'll know when I go up for tenure whether or not that was a good bet. Um, but until 2023, I won't know. Um, but I don't regret. I don't regret that bet either um, because I would not. I am much more mature in this job this academic year than I would have been when I first started. And so I don't need to imprint all of that uncertainty and insecurity and anxiety onto like some pristine graduate student hard drive. So for sure, I don't regret um, passing on grad students the first year. I think most other people in my department didn't do that. So we'll see. We'll see. But for me, it was the right decision. Compare and contrast, right? But yeah, I think it depends always. on that. It totally depends on the, the area though, right? The area of of research. I mean, it's not, yeah. there's no one size fits all strategy. There's no one size fits all. And there was certainly no um, like administrative, like recommendation with a wink that I should take students my first year. They were more than understanding that I was choosing to, to put that on hold for at least the first year. So that made me feel better. I mean, it sounds like every one of your choices, whether it was a risk or a big bet or a, you know, uh, has been examined and really intentional and Thoroughly self-aware. Yeah. Myself and others, um, <laughs> for sure. But um, I have also learned that something that I think my graduate advisor already knows or could have told me was that I am very detail-oriented to a point that sometimes it hurts my productivity or thinking. And so everything is overthought certainly. Um, and sometimes it's overthought in a way that is helpful and sometimes, sometimes not as much, but they, things are certainly thought out. The listeners can't see this, but if you saw Christine and I's office in the background versus <laughs> Courtney's, you would know exactly what she's talking about. Cause it <laughs> looks very nicely laid out and oh, uh, mine you. is a total wreck job. <laughs> so, but it takes um, all types, right? It takes all types. It takes all types, but all also, like I am a temporary hire until they tell me I can live here forever. So I want <laughs> this needs to fit into three boxes, and because I'm also on the fourth floor. Um, so if the elevator is broken, I need to hightail it out quickly. <laughs> Contingencies the whole way. Absolutely. No, I've got like I've got backup plans for, for everything. Like I'm going to start a house painting business. Mm. Um, or a carpentry business. Um, uh, if this doesn't work out here, yeah, like a compound miter, uh, reciprocating. I've got them all. Um, awesome. So yeah. Um, so and <clears throat> this is just the first plug for that in case this goes south. Makes but, sense. Makes sense. Yeah. There'll be a lot of carpentry crossover on this podcast. Yes, for sure. Certainly, I'm very excited about it. <laughs> <laughs> yep. That's our next. That's our next frontier. So now that you are a, a bona fide professor, uh, a question that we ask and I would love to ask you is: What would you go back and tell, you know, summer of twenty eighteen, Courtney, mm. who is driving across the country? Um, you get to 
go sit in the passenger seat next to her, probably between you and Dave, right? <laughs> and, yes. Um, yeah. And uh, and whisper something, some piece of wisdom in your ear. What do you say? <clears throat> that's a, <clears throat> excuse me. That's a good question. Um, if so, I would <clears throat> tell my 2018 self to go back to 2017. And self and say, take a business course, um, just anything like intro to business management, intro to group dynamics, something, um, because I am woefully underprepared for both of those things. Um, and it, and because it, it, through no fault of anybody's but my own, it's much more like running a business um, than I anticipated. And so a lot of that stuff I am learning on the job and I have, um, texted my brother more than I ever have, who was a marketing major to be like, what advice can you legally give me about um, (laughs) business or working in groups or um, administration? Because that's stuff that isn't even talked about to grad students. Um, And so, um, you know, not everybody wants to do this job or go into it, but um, odds are we're going to work, for business or we're going to start a business. So it should at least, I think, be a conversation point in a way that I I don't feel like um, I was even aware of it before I really started this job. And um, they sent me a budget form for a grant proposal. And I didn't, I I was like, what, what's FNA? And now of course I know. Um, But uh, so that's one of the things that I would tell um, old me, um, my, I would also tell myself that, um, it is more important to focus on the things that I achieved and not the things that I, um, the grants I didn't get or the things that I did wrong. And I think, I don't think I'm alone in focusing on negative things. I think the human brain is, is hardwired to do that because if there's a negative stimulus, we want to get away from it more so than if, if there's a positive stimulus um, and we want to be wrong to it. And so um, I take, um, I ruminate more on the things that I have done badly, much more than I savor the things that I have pulled in. So in 10 years, I will probably remember the 20 grants that got rejected more so than I'll remember this amazing USDA grant that got me started. And I, I don't, I don't like that quality in myself. And I think um, that it does, it does me a disservice to do that because it minimizes um, the things that make me feel good about myself and and what I am actually doing. And so it's, I don't know that I could have fixed that in 2018, but I am certainly more conscious about it now to um, almost write off things that don't go well because ruminating on them and, and thinking about them and internalizing them so much that they become a part of myself and how I think about myself is not going to help me. It's not going to help my students. It's not going to help anybody. And so I would advocate for anybody, especially in STEM, um, to, to, um, 
almost ignore rejections more than certainly more than we do it now because um I think all it does is is feed imposter syndrome um and that is a cat that doesn't need to be fed um because it won't go away at all um and I don't know how to end that in a really eloquent way but um that I would say is the biggest the biggest kernel of advice I would give um I was I was very surprised by how short um, or how little um, getting and achieving something like pulling in that USDA grant um, I'm not I'm not phrasing this very well so hopefully you'll edit this part out but um, the the sting of a rejection for me lasts a lot longer than achieving something, even when achieving the thing um, in magnitude is much greater and much better than the small $30,000 grant I got rejected from. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm, I don't think there's an easy fix for changing that other than just changing the way I think about um, my worldview, really. You know, it almost makes me think that the exact same thing, um, you know, different language for the same phenomenon could even be part of the mindset. So one of the shifts is Mm -hmm. focus on the wins. And then the other thing is I could imagine uh, someone describing rather than perseverating on the sting of loss. Another way to say that is that you're competitive and that you have inner drive, you know? And so it's almost the same reaction, but just without uh, a normative label that is negative, you know? Um, Yeah, it really is. And I I wonder too, uh, you know, it sounds like you're already an incredible advisor. You took on two students so they wouldn't be alone. You, you know, I can imagine how you will be because you're, you're, being really intentional about the stresses that you're letting them bear to grow them versus the ones that you have. But if you pretended that you were the mentor of you, you'd be so much kinder, right? We always yeah. would. So. Yes. Um, yeah. Almost always um, short of any, any like illegal activity. I think that is a clear like bribery and quid pro quo, for example, that should have a clear <laughs> common consequence for all persons of this great country. Um, but, (laughs) but, um, no, absolutely. I am much kinder to everyone, but myself. Um, and I've also found out over the last 18 months or so that I need an embarrassing amount of positive reinforcement, um, from external people. So it isn't, and that I think is also a disconnect that I share with, many people in STEM, but, um, I have started to really make myself question why the same comment from me has less weight than somebody down the hall for me. And so I think, um, turning more inward and having internal validation for the things that I have done well and not done very well, but I did it. Um, I think is becoming increasingly important because just the nature of this 
job is to be very independent and solitary. And those are the things that I love about it, but there are flip sides to every, um, every coin. So that is definitely something that I'm also working on, but relabeling I think is a great strategy and I am going to keep that for myself because I think that will help as well. Cool. I, I don't know if we have any other questions, Christine. That's, that's like the perfect way to end this interview. What do you think, Christine? Yeah, I just, I, I am so impressed with how much stuff you've done in a year and that, you know, I, I knew that you would be amazing at the, the job and that you would have all this witty and reflective, great insight for doing the job. But mm-hmm. I think what's also striking me is that you're doing, you've done at least that much work inward too to self-reflect and self-protect and build up the kind of person that you want to be inside of your mind as well as building a research group. And it's only been a year since we talked to you. Oh my gosh. So this is what, this is, this is exactly what I'm talking about. This is the positive reinforcement (laughs) that I eat for breakfast and lunch and dinner and three whole snacks. Christine is so good about picking up subtle cues from people. You know, she's just like real good. Like, no, she's great. I have actually (laughs) on more than one occasion thought, what would Christine say to me right now? Like what would Christine have? Because I know that it would be better than anything I could come up with. And actually um, that has also been helpful. So having a, mental mentor um is also great so oh just my that. that's like maybe the nicest thing i've ever heard thank you oh you're welcome thinking about working on yourself it's like i think we've said this on another episode i don't think it was yours but it's like the old ox put your own oxygen mask on first before helping others yeah right and yeah. it's it's kind of it's kind of been said too much, but I don't think it can be said too much because yeah. as much external work as you have to do, you have to do almost equal amount, if not more, internal internal work. Yeah, and I will say, as is a young person, I never like fundamentally that never made sense to me. I was like, but I can save twenty people, <laughs> and even if I die, that's twenty more. That's twenty people. So um, now um, I'm all. I also turned thirty last year. So I feel like this is the decade where, um, things just fall by the wayside if they're not that important, but prioritizing that shift in, in that mental shift of like my needs are just as valid as somebody else's. And my personal feedback is just as valid as somebody else's. Um, that is maybe the best mental thing to have come out of this experience. So, for sure. Well, this has been super awesome. And I'm so glad this is like, unless things change, this is the end of the last interview in the helium podcast series. So what an amazing bookend. I am very, very honored to be the, the bookend, but I am also hopeful that it isn't the last one because I have really enjoyed listening to everybody's interviews. So I think you guys did a great job with it and I am honored to have been a part of it. So thank you very much. Thank you, Courtney. That's very sweet. I need, I, I love the positive validation that you're giving me. right Yes. Now. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And also if you guys need jobs, I'll hire you out of my startup to be my positive reinforcers. You can, you can sit right there. Still neat, even though your office is super neat, even if you lower the camera. (laughs) 
amazing. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, if I can do anything related to this podcast or not in the future, just let me know. I'd be happy to help. That's awesome. Well, also, uh, we, I'm sure we'll, we'll, it's still recording, but we'll like stop it at one of the goodbyes. You want me to stop it now? I can stop Um, it. Oh no, it's okay. I was just usually like at a party. I, Zach says that I usually average like 10 goodbyes before we actually leave. So (laughs) yeah. 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 Well, everyone, I hope you enjoyed episode 34 of Helium Podcast. You can find out more about this episode at www.teamhelium.co slash episode 34. We'll be back soon with episode 35, the last episode of Helium Podcast. And again, if you're interested in supporting the podcast and keeping it up on the iTunes servers, etc., you can go to www.patreon.com dot com slash helium podcast to support the work that we've done here. Thanks everyone. We'll see you in episode 35.